powered up. We have had to conform to a certain social game. And so we are in a constant state of competition. In terms of that competition, we can, of course, lose place. And in that sense, make mistakes. This is the secret. You can't make a mistake. Welcome, everybody, to Friends of Failure. I'm your host, Sam, and this is my co-host, Megan. Hey, Really excited to introduce you to our guest today, Jay Schiffman. How you doing? Good. Happy to be here. Happy to be chatting with you all on a, on a nice Sunday afternoon. Yeah, uh, I, I always enjoy Sunday. I, I don't know if I could necessarily say it's a day of rest for me. Uh, I get a lot of stuff done on Sunday, um, but it's very casual and... Uh, not stressful so it feels like a rest day right weather i would say the weather's nice except it is a little toasty for us uh i i pretty sure it's a little warm there for you too if if you're outside right <laughs> it's 90 outside but i'm in a nice ac office right now loving it uh gotta stay gotta stay brisk during the summertime you know that's right jay i, w- I would love for you to uh you know for anybody listening to kind of give us like uh your intro you know tell us about kind of what you do and and who you are well, I am the the founder of Choose Your Struggle. It's a company that aims to end stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy. Uh, I'm a guy in long-term recovery myself and I'm the host of a couple of shows. The Choose Your Struggle podcast is my weekly and uh, the, the one that I think a lot of people know me for right now is a documentary podcast that dropped in April called Choose Your Struggle Presents Made It Season One Stay Savage, in which I told the story of a woman by the name of Sarah Laurel here in South Philly, who started the harm reduction and recovery uh, housing uh, nonprofit Savage Sisters after being thrown out of the second story window of a trap house. Uh, she's a person I'm delighted to call a friend. I'm on the board of the organization and it was a labor of love, but, uh, the podcast is really helping change people's ideas about what addiction looks like. And what about people who use drugs and people who struggle with drug, uh, substance misuse and addiction. So definitely would recommend people check that out and let me know what you think, but you can find my writing all over. You can find me on all your favorite podcasts like this one. That, that was awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's a task a lot of people probably couldn't do, right? Like you, you, you have to, you have to have a desire to participate in something like that. Right. And, and it's for the greater good. Oh um, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, being able to, to serve people, especially in a realm of having conversations about, you know, the stigma of let's say addiction. And I mean, having a story of being thrown out of a second story, right? Like that's hard to talk about for some people, right? It's uncomfortable, but I think the uncomfortable things are what allow us to grow, right? Like that's the whole thing about us is failure is uncomfortable, but it's very necessary if we want to move forward to, I think, better things, better versions of things, you know, being in the military, obviously whenever we whenever we leave high school and stuff right people go to college they go to the military they they whatever and a lot of people drink and a lot of people don't look at that as like an addiction right or 
you know, whatever it is. And so I'm curious as to whenever you talk to people about this, do you kind of, do you have a way to, to start the conversation that leads into it becoming heavier as you go, where it's like kind of lighthearted at the beginning, and then it turns into like, hey, let's really talk about the actual issue? Or are you like, a, hey, let's rip that bandaid off and deep dive? <laughs> Well, I think that there's two answers to that. On my show, uh, the way that we do it is uh, on Choose Your Show of the Weekly, we start with the person's story because that helps them feel more comfortable to open up. And it also helps the listeners. Like, it's one thing to take what this person says, but it's another thing if you know that, oh, they've lived this, like this is their experience. Um, and, and, and so we always start with their story first. And then go into some of the ideas or their work if they work in policy or whatever the case is. Uh, so that's what's made that show so successful. In terms of the day to day life, no nah, man, I rip it right off. And, and you know, it's one of those things that uh, people either go with you or they retreat, and you kind of have that mindset of like they weren't going to come on this journey anyways, right? Um, and <laughs> it's funny. A couple of summers ago, uh, my wife and I were in the car and we were listening to this report on NPR with a woman whose mission was to eliminate small talk. And so she it was amazing. I love this. And I've, I've adopted this for myself. Yeah. Uh, she what she does is she would walk up to someone, whether she was in line for tickets in a movie theater or whatever. And before they could get out the whole how is you know, how's the drive over here? How's the weather? She'll launch into some deep and personal questions. And the reason she does that is what I just said, is that either people go, wow, you actually, you, you want to know that? And she's like, yeah. And then they have a really wonderful, you know, connection conversation or people immediately shut down. And she's like, that's fine. They weren't going to go with me anyways. And I don't want to engage in small talk. And here's what's funny is that the, the interviewer said, okay, we have to know what question has the, the, the highest success rate. And she said, funny enough, it's how'd you lose your virginity? Uh, because people either just go, nope, and shut down completely, or they're like, oh my God, like that's a thing you actually want to know. And you can learn so much more about the, the sort of minor details in the story of that story about a person, you know, what their high school experience was like, if they lost Virginia high school or, or college or whatever, who they were at that time, there's so much more that you can get from that story. Uh, so that's sort of how I engage on a day to day level, because these are topics that, that the topics that I work on, the topics that I care about are ones that people will not open up about. And so I jump right into that deep end and the people that want to come swimming with me come swimming with me. I 100% believe in that right out the gate, just because if you asked me that question and, and I shut down, it's because I got defensive of like, who is this person? And, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Right. But as a person who's recently really focused on trying to find a, um, a consistent level of authenticity all the time, because I realized that, you know, being in, in different fields of customer service while growing up and through my 20s and stuff, I had to put on a face or I always felt like I had to put on a face. Right. And the thing is, is being authentic. You don't you don't have to be, you know, mean. Right. Or you know, even if, if there's a confrontational question or situation, that doesn't mean that it's bad, right? Well, and I think a lot of us yeah. get really uncomfortable. And you still choose what you share. Like you don't have to overshare sure. or you're not pressured to it, uh, hopefully at least. And we a lot on this podcast talk about how you can't force someone into change. You can't drag a horse to water. 
And I'm sure in your line of work, it's the same thing. You can't force people to see what you're trying to say, or even someone who's deep in that situation itself, you can't make them change. They have to choose it. Yeah, I think that there's there there's sort of two levels of that, right? Because you cannot force someone to believe what you believe. Yeah. What you can force someone to do is take a hard look at their own beliefs. So, you know, um, for me, at least uh, when I my, my number one focus is is changing the way people look at drug use and drug users. Because I, I've done a TED talk about this and the, the, the whole point, I, I write about this for various publications and, and the, the, the whole point of try, I always try to make is if you want to understand why people look at people like me who use drugs and struggle with drugs in, in, in a negative way and why we don't get the help that we deserve, it's because that we are taught, we have been taught for literally over 100 years that drug users are bad. And you, you go back to the very first drug laws in this country, which were all aimed at certain subclasses of people in this country. The very first law around drugs in the United States was in the late 1870s, and it directly was aimed at Asian immigrants. And you go from there to the early 1900s when it was uh, black men and specifically black men uh, and, and Mexican immigrants. And you just keep going and, and almost luckily we're... we're we are blessed with the fact that our forefathers were so overtly racist because if you can't argue their words are right there they are openly talking about the need for these laws because black men are using heroin to sleep with white women it's just it's out there and so if you're able to say to someone look i know you think this about this substance or about someone like me let me show you where this comes from you start to help someone understand that all right I may not agree with you, but at least I know that what I think is built on a giant pile of BS. And the more you do that, the more you can show that there's no, no substance there. And if we can get rid of that sort of false uh, foundation and fill it back in with common sense and fact-based education, that's how we start to change the way people think about people like myself and the people that I care about. So. You know, no, you can't change the way someone thinks, but you can show them the fallacies in what they think and say, look, please consider looking at this giant pile of evidence that says that you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't do that with uh, talking about like substance abuse or, you know, I, I don't know a lot about like where the law started and whatnot. But I think a lot of us, too, as, as things are progressing forward, you know, it's I think more people are at least asking the, the right questions. Right. Um, and then it's all about finding the people like yourself or in, in other circumstances, just the, the reality that the truth that we think we know might not be the truth at all. Right. Like you said, the fallacies of it. And so just offering the viewpoint of like, Hey, this is what the truth is. What do you think it is that you believe in? Right. Sometimes people aren't ready for it. Right. Like, you, you know, the paradigm shift, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, like you try to wake people up and go like, hey, look around and see what's happening. And I, I had a time where I was really happy in my little bubble. You know, like I was just having the time of my life, or at least I thought I was. And mm -hmm. then I started to open my eyes and I was like, I'm kind of miserable. And it was like, why am I so miserable? And then, you know, thankfully, maybe, maybe at one point, I felt like I was a little late to the game, but I started to try to like, you know, wake up as some of them would say, right, like try to see things for what it actually is. And you know, it's, it's honorable work to, to be willing to just do that all the time. Right. Um, you, if I understand correctly, you have a background that, that really helps you in, in doing this, right. Like in terms of, 
uh, not only the work experience that you have, but like your education as well, right? Yeah, so I, I like to say that I'm one of the few people, unfortunately, who mixes both lived and learned experiences on this this topic of drug use and, and substance misuse. Uh, you know, I, as a guy in recovery, I did get my degree in psychology in 2012, and I've spent the last decade since uh, getting certificates in, in everything from, uh, you know, understanding addic- the, the history of addiction in this country uh, and, and internationally to uh, the actual um, psychology behind drug use and that kind of thing. Uh, I am by far uh, not the most educated person. And I look up to a lot of people with that education that, that I admire, but also uh, I don't know many people with more education than me that also have lived experience. And uh, that's a good thing. <laughs> they shouldn't want that lived experience. I didn't want that lived experience either. But, uh, you know, it is it is. Uh, dependent on people like me who've been there and are in the rooms with the educated people to say, look, you know, I have not studied this for 30 years like you did, but you never woke up on your bathroom floor, you know, going through withdrawal. And and because of that, we both need a seat at this table. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I like to bring both of those hats uh, to the table when I'm doing this work is the person who understands what is being taught, but at the same time can say, you know, that's not quite uh, in in keeping with my own experience on this subject. And I, I think experience, you're right, it's a thing that you can't replace with any amount of education. And you're kind of serving as that conduit in between for the people that are going through it currently and then kind of the education side of it. What are the, the gaps or the failures that you see on people that are purely, you know, book educated on this issue? Where do they not, you know, seem to understand? That's a really great question. Uh, so there's sort of two different directions with that. The first is that there's a lot of, in both camps, by the way, there's a lot of bias. Uh, I work with a lot of people with lived experience who just despise the, the, the people with the PhDs. And, and most of that is because to, to, to paint with a very broad brush, or although every, all of us who do this work have at least one story of a PhD telling us to get out of their sandbox. It, it's the, 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 it's not really their fault. I mean, this this country really highlights people with lived or learned experience over lived experience. And there's a lot of that sort of uh, digested by those who, who, who have been in academia for a long time. So there is a little bit of that hate on both sides, uh, which can get a little uh, tiresome. But, but in terms of the people with that, the learned experience only, there is a lot of sort of uh, reliance on theory and that's beautiful. Like, yes, people have been studying this for a long time, but until you know what it's like to be out there, I mean, uh, I I haven't been uh, in in a in a, um, a dangerous situation over my drug use in over ten years, and so people who are going through that right now with the the surge of tranquilizer dope, and now we're seeing benzo dope. I mean, the fact is, if you're buying heroin off the street, you're not buying heroin. There's just it's just not in there anymore. So for people to be sitting up in a in a university somewhere talking about what that must be like is is throw that out the window it's garbage you know we have so many people who are living this every day who can tell us and that's why the organizations that i admire are the ones who are on the street level working with the people who are struggling in this moment so yeah i mean i serve as a bit of a of a bridge between the two camps but i wouldn't be anything if i was trying to talk about what it was like for people out on the street today because i have no idea that's uh 
That's a great awareness to have. I mean, I uh, obviously the, I think the only way I could really kind of relate would be like, I got out of the, the Marine Corps in 2014. And if I tried to tell you what it would be like today, I have, I have no idea. I, I, I have been out of that for so long. Like I, I don't get it anymore. And sure. It's the whole once a Marine, always a Marine. Like there's that camaraderie, but it's like, I don't know what the experience is like today. I can't even imagine going through 2020 or 2021 being in the military. Right. Like I was fortunate enough, you know, my job wasn't that serious. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that's pretty cool. I, I do wonder, you know, in terms of education, it's very important to go through the avenues, right? Like going to university, right. And, and like studying and, and acquiring certifications and stuff. But um, have you ever had moments where even when you're, you're learning from some of, let's say the greats or like the people that you admire, where you have a disconnect with some of the stuff that they're like teaching where you're like, well, you know, is this, I don't want to say archaic. Um, is this maybe not up to par, right? With what's currently happening, right? Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're learning on such a rapid rate now yeah. these days. Yeah, and, and I, that's a, uh, thank you for saying that, Sam, because I do want to make this this caveat clear is, especially when it comes to drug use and, and uh, drug policy, this is changing so rapidly that even if you, uh, got out of school a year ago, you're already way behind. So I, I don't, I think it's really important that we all be okay with saying, I don't know, or I may be wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's sort of two, two examples of that, that I can think of one of which is really funny to me. So I did go back to get my degree. I started to a couple of years ago. There's only two programs in the entire United States focused on drug policy, not drug counseling. And I didn't want to do drug counseling. So I took one of these policy, uh, uh, um, degrees. It was a master's degree out of South Dakota State University online. In the very first class, they they told us what textbook to get. It was from 2006. And as I just said, I mean, a year ago, it's already old. This was archaic. And it, the first chapter was on the dangers of weed. And I was I reached out to my professor and I was like, hold up. Like, I live in a state where I have my card. What what is like what are you teaching? And she was like, Well, we still need to know about the dangers and it might be legal where you are, but we it, you know, all this stuff. So I was like aghast. I was like, all right, it's one thing to to be like there are two sides to a debate. It's another thing to try to pretend this isn't this isn't real. So I actually reached out to the Board of Regents at this school. And because this is a state school, they referred me to the governor's office. <laughs> who uh and, and this is south dakota right this is not a bastion of liberalization here and they looked into the program and then shut it down they were like this is so <laughs> bad what they're what they're doing that they were, we're gonna pull their accreditation so uh that was a whole thing uh i got my money back i got a thank you from the governor of south dakota it was a whole thing and, and so that was kind of comical but, you know, it, 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 there are people that I admire who have done incredible work, but 
you know, if you are of an older generation, let's say, you probably still think some things that are a little bit harmful. And, and the one that you see the most is what we like to call cannabis exceptionalism. Now, I'm a giant cannabis fan. I have my medical card. Uh, I, I do think that that we're finally in this age where we are at least being able to study. You know, until a couple of years ago, there was only one place in the entire country that was allowed to do research on cannabis, and it was the government's one farm, right? And so then you have this round robin of, well, we're not going to legalize it because we don't know anything about it and we're not going to do any research because it's not legal and so you're, you're starting to see that change and i think that's beautiful but there is this older sect who are saying we can only focus on cannabis nothing else we shouldn't legalize anything else nothing else should be decriminalized and and that's really dangerous thinking because there is no difference at all between what we should be doing with cannabis and a lot of these other substances i mean yes cannabis is safer than even alcohol right but at the, at the end of the day the us's policies have never been about safety and if you want proof of that the two most dangerous substances uh in this country are alcohol and nicotine and yet both are legal right nicotine helps lead to so many people dying that when i did my ted talk last year i did a graph on all the 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 lives not only lost but negatively impacted by substances just to show that this has nothing to do with safety and nicotine was so far above everything else that I actually did to two graphs because if you just put nicotine, everything else was squished at the bottom. I was like, this doesn't do me any good. So I did the nicotine graph and then I did everything else. And, and, but here's the, the thing about nicotine too, is that nicotine actually is a perfectly safe uh, chemical. It's just everything else is mixed in with cigarettes, all the rat poison and all that kind of shit. So the fact is that none of this has anything to do with safety. And if you actually back off of that uh, incorrect assertion, you can go, all right, what are we actually talking about here? And that gets back to my earlier point of all of it being based on a lot of BS that mo almost entirely comes from racism and classism. So if we can start looking at those things, and that's why I admire people who are of the older generation are willing to go, you know, maybe we didn't get this thing right. Maybe we should be taking another look at this. And the, the one name I have to shout out because I shout him out every time I do this is the head of, uh, I believe he's the head of psychology at Columbia University. His name is Dr. Carl Hart. One of the great thinkers right now about drug use, he recently wrote a best-selling book called uh, Drug Use for Grownups that basically tries to pull back the curtain and show the U.S. is not only not leading the world, we are almost dead last. You know, all these other countries have been are, have kind of left us in the dust. And there's a reason that while other countries are getting better at, at eliminating overdoses, the U.S. is lapping the rest of the world. And it's because of these harmful policies. I'm I'm going to do my best and either one of you, please, you know, feel free to stop me if I get too all over the place, but I was literally going to bring up the whole alcohol and, and cigarettes, but like nicotine in general, like vaping is the thing that's like hurting a lot of people too. Cause I, I have, I could tell you a list of things that are in cigarettes because like, you know, I, I remember being a kid in the dare program and whatever, which is <laughs> I funny. I was going to bring up the dare program. <laughs> well, well, what's so funny about that is like, I went from knowing nothing about drugs to being like, well, if I do this, I could meet a drug dealer. And if I meet a drug dealer, I could get drugs. Like I was like in fifth grade, like it was crazy. Um, but so like even nicotine or caffeine, right? I'm a person that I, I'm a certified personal trainer. I don't do it anymore, but I, I learned a lot about nutrition and all that jazz. And like sugar, in my opinion, is, is just as dangerous as 
you know, nicotine. Like if you don't know what you're doing, right. Or how it's getting consumed, there's all these other additives. And like, that's where the first thing, the eye opening of like, Hey, it's not about safety. It's about maybe control. And so one thing that's crazy to me is, you know, you, you made that phone call, you end up talking to a governor. They're like, they take a look at it and they go, Oh, what is this? This is like probably bad, not good. But you know, one thing that I, I feel a lot of us see, and we've all been seeing it forever, is um, how much of, well, I can't talk about that because, you know, I'm in politics and like I have an image or I'm a celebrity and I have an image or, you know, I'm whatever, I have an image. And so it's like, I don't want to talk about it. And it really bothers me because I feel like we've created all these weird things that hinder progress because well, and it kind of hides what's actually happening if no one talks about it on a public platform yeah. yeah like i mean i think part of the problem too is you know some of the things that you bring up i mean you you obviously know what you're talking about you've been in this for a long time not only do you have life experience but you're you're educated in it right and you're staying on top of it do you have a lot of things that you you can bring to the table that are very important to discuss, even though I'm not in the world of it. Like I see what you're talking about and I agree with you and somebody has got to do it. Do you people that have nothing to do with it, right? They've, they've never had addiction, which that's BS. We both know that we're all addicted to something. Right. Um, but like they've never had any major issues with addiction or alcoholism or, understanding what's going on, you know, in America or even globally in terms of drug use and understanding it. Do you have people who try to argue where they're like, well, Hey man, hold up. Like, I, I know that we've talked about, there are issues with like the older way of thinking and, you know, the dare program. I don't even know if that exists. Uh, but um, do you have that issue with younger people as well? Like, I, I'm not trying to attack anybody based on their age. I'm just saying like, I'm in my thirties and I noticed that like, I'm in this weird place where, you know, I'll talk to people that are, let's say, early 20s. And like, I kind of feel like the disconnect of like, man, I, I really don't understand what it's like for you being that age going through this world. And then I talk to people that are in their 50s. And I'm like, I don't really understand the, the version of the world you had. I mean, I got to experience a little bit of time before the internet, but like not enough for it to really shape me, you know? So I think that it is it, it is changing pretty rapidly. So you mentioned the politics thing and I pulled, I, I want to, I, I use this quote every time and because we're sitting here and I can actually pull it up on my computer, I didn't want to bastardize it. So when Nixon launches the war on drugs in 1972, at that time, drugs were not a big problem in the United States. In fact, in most places, a lot of these things were still used in medicine almost, I mean, through the 50s, right? So it wasn't that long ago. You know, you're talking about, we remember the time before the internet that's farther away than when between the time of all these drugs still being in medicine and Nixon still launching the war on drugs. It was it, it, we would have had if we were alive at that time, parents still using, you know, heroin in their medicine at home. Uh, uh, cocaine would have been in coke 30 years before. I mean, right. this was not that far off. Right. So Nixon sort of out of nowhere launches this war on drugs. And there's a quote from his number one advisor uh, who was the assistant to the president, John Ehrlichman. And Ehrlichman is very famous for people who study history because Ehrlichman goes down in Watergate. He's one of the, one of the big guys who, mm -hmm. who, who goes down during Watergate. Here's his quote. So um, he says, did we know we couldn't make it illegal to be either black or against the war? Of course we did. 
but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That was John Ehrlichman on his deathbed to a, a, a mil amazing reporter by the name of Dan Baum, who got him to admit this not long before he died. Now, that's 1972. So, so Nixon very famously is, is, is known for what he called the Southern strategy, which is his way of being overtly racist without being overtly racist. So this was a piece of that, of, of Nixon going after his enemies in the name of something that people would support. But to be honest, the drug war isn't really that big of a deal throughout Nixon. And of course, uh, then he goes away, Ford, Carter, whatever, right? The guy who takes this and pours gasoline on it was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan saw this and, and look, I despise the man, but he was a brilliant political mind. And he saw this and said, I'm going to run on this. It's not a coincidence that his wife becomes known as the just say no woman. I mean, this was all very calculated. <clears throat> So, so Reagan does a study that, that when he comes into office, and he finds that only 2% of people in this country think that drugs are the biggest issue. By two years later, or three years later, I don't remember the actual date, it is over 60%. They've hit this thing all the time trying to make this into a giant issue, and they succeeded. And coincidentally, it's also when AIDS is, is going on. And it's and then we have what we now know is the moral panic that was the crack epidemic. And all of a sudden, drugs are every night in our nightly news. So guys, again, like Carl Hart, Maya Salovitz have done amazing journalism to show there never was a crack epidemic. There were a lot of people using crack, but the number of people who, who were actually struggling with, with a negative side of crack use is minute considering you know what we now call the opioid epidemic kind of have all this happening over again so this was a giant moral panic that was used by the nixon i'm sorry the reagan white house to further their own goals and he knew it would work because it always works because they they saw what nixon did with this issue and they said thank you we're going to take that football and run with it now all of that sounds conspiratorial and, and and i get that i mean this is all like um you know until what 20 years ago if you told people that the cia uh, did experiments on people using lsd you were a crackpot right and then mk ultra gets uh, leaked and now we all know that that was real this sounds very similar and thanks to you know again dan Baum and maya salovitz and some of these amazing uh, uh journalists who have been working tirelessly uh johan hari is another one if, if you don't know johan hari wrote chasing the scream which was the most illuminating book on the war on drugs and and it not only was it really good and I, I i think it's one of the best it actually was a bestseller it was it was on the top of the bestseller list for a while the new york times bestseller list so I say all that to say 10 years ago, talking the way that I talk now was like, go to the corner, you little crazy hat person. <laughs> and now these are literally top of the New York Times bestselling list authors who are exposing this just awful things that our government did in the name of drug use and drug abuse and all of this, right? So 
to answer your question is no we're not seeing that so much from the younger generation because just the way we kind of remember before the internet sure some of them remember a little before the times that we were starting to wake up about drug use and drug users but for most of them those lies of the past dare just say no uh, that's like just they, they never were alive during that bs so so that's they were not indoctrinated the way that we were and that's why their generation look i had somebody reach out the other day an old friend i didn't talk to in years who said my daughter's going to college and she reached out to me and, and didn't ask for condoms the way we all did when we went to college she asked where she could get some narcan and i was like i don't know how to get narcan but i know jay does so she reached out to me to say where can i get my daughter the the opioid overdose reversing drug right these this is what we're seeing for the next generation and it's because they didn't have all of those lies shoved down their throat like we did when we were kids um i have a couple of questions so i i again i i really appreciate like you already have like a very good understanding not only of like the history and how we got here right which is very very important but i i feel like you have a, a unique perspective from from the journey that you're going through and so two things that i'm curious about the first one would be i guess the part a of the question would be do you think anything in the mainstream media is actually truth I mean, sure, there could be parts of it, but do you think that do you think that it's more of a lot of the media that we're getting exposed to, especially like, let's say, TV, like cable? Would you agree that it's more fabricated than it has truth to it on this topic? We'll say this topic. Sure. Yeah. So unfortunately, in, in, in better, you know, there is a really beautiful and vibrant harm reduction community online. Uh, obviously in person too here in Philly it's robust but uh, especially on Twitter and 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 you can find some really incredible thinkers it would take me too long to list everybody that I follow but there are some people who focus on that question exclusively which is trying to help people understand why journalists are getting this topic so wrong mm -hmm. uh, and it's mostly because journalists for a long time have taken the the law enforcement words to be verbatim like that's the the answer here what is really dangerous about that i mean there's obviously a lot of problems with it but on this topic alone is that if you just think about that for a second law enforcement have a very specific job they're not scientists right and so when it comes to if you want to know about locking up statistics sure ask law enforcement what was you know that what is happening in our jails ask law enforcement but when it comes to you know you see these headlines with dealer arrested with enough fentanyl to you know cause an overdose of all of cleveland right and and there's a guy on, online by the name of ryan uh he's a journalist who his whole thing is going through those headlines and being like this is not literally possible right i mean that the, the whole cops overdosing by fentanyl exposure it, it it boggles my mind how often i see that I'm working with the same communities. I, I've never overdosed from fentanyl exposure. Right. These cops claim they pull a guy off the street. Next thing you know, you see a, a picture of them on the ground being over, you know, uh, administered Narcan. I'm literally sitting there with the same people. Like, what is happening in your brain? I just don't. I don't understand it. So 
no, the journal journalists are not doing a good job on this topic on, on a broad spectrum. However, there are a couple outlets that I have to shout out because they are doing a good job. There's an outlet by the name of Filter Mag, uh, and it's it's specifically on the topics of drug use and drug policy. And they hire people with lived experience. They hire people who are dedicated to actually getting real stories out there. On my show, I've interviewed the editor and a couple of the, the writers. I did a project with one of the writers. Really amazing people who actually know what is going on. So props to them. And also the other one, they don't get it right all the time. But Vice News, a couple years ago, publicly sort of, did a mea culpa and said, we want to apologize. We have not done a good job on the topic of, of drug use and, and all of this. We are going that. to change. And since then, again, they're not getting it right all the time and they've made some pretty boneheaded moves as well, but they have more times than not tried to get the story. And the way they're doing it, and they're very open about this, they, and I props them for doing so, is they will not use law enforcement as sources. They actually want to talk to drug users. And so when I'm out there in the field here in Philadelphia, I can't tell you how many times I've actually been walking around with a vice news person, right? Whether they're there with a camera or they're just a, a reporter with their notebook who are actually talking to people like us who are doing the work or drug users themselves trying to get the real story and not relying on law enforcement to be their, to, to, to be their source. And quite frankly, is it more work for them? Probably, but they're going to get a better story that way. Cause the, the reason I had asked that, uh, Sometimes you hear these like positive stories. And, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from, I guess, the perspective of like being a veteran where they'll be like, hey, there are these guys that they have severe levels of PTSD and through. Psilocybin therapy. Well, there's that. And yeah. then there's like even just like utilizing marijuana. Right. Mm -hmm. Like especially in places where like they're legally able to. Um, but you hear about ayahuasca. Right. Mm -hmm. You hear about you hear about these different things and they're like, but it only pertains to like, you know, you are absolutely in the most traumatic worst case scenario. And then the other thing that like, I feel we always see is, you know, celebrities, right? Like this uh, very young uprising, you know, pop rap, whatever rock star OD'd on, on fentanyl or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And sometimes, cause it started to happen like more and more often. It just seemed kind of, it, it was hard for me to fathom. Because I think the reality is, is there's probably a huge issue. There's plenty of people that OD every day, um, but like they would bring it up and it was almost like they're just kind of like, you know, again, drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. They're all the same, you know, whatever. And so that was kind of why I asked you the question is, have you, have you ever heard of Little Pete? Yeah. So it's funny you say that. I, I was a giant fan of Juice World. Um, right. That one, one, that one hurt a lot. Um, you know, and what was so sad is, yeah, I mean, Little People was recently, but like there was a time there was extension, Juice World, and one other dude were all within like three months of each other. The the thing is, um, so sort of two points here. The first of which is that when we talk about fentanyl, when we talk about people ODing on fentanyl. There's a really important word we're leaving out, and that word is illicit. Ninety. It's 92 or 96 percent of the world's fentanyl is safely used in medicine. And if you went to your doctor next time you were getting a major, major surgery, and you said, Doc, 
I do not want fentanyl, they'd be like, fine, go get surgery somewhere else because it, it, there's, they're not going to be able to do what they want to do for you or you are going to be in such un unbelievable pain, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember, this is, this is sort of an aside, but back in 2008, uh, 2008, 2009, I was at a music festival. This is when I was at my worst uh, on my pills and all that, but there was a dude there with me who was higher than I've ever seen a human in my life off of a fentanyl lollipop. I mean, fentanyl's been around forever, right? I mean, this had been diverted from a from a hospital. So fentanyl's been around for a long time. It wasn't an issue until a couple of years ago, and it became an issue because law enforcement was doing such a such a bang up job of cracking down on heroin that dealers couldn't get heroin, right? And fentanyl, the, the same amount of fentanyl to get a person high that you need for heroin, I mean, it's mi minuscule. And fentanyl, you can, it's, it doesn't have odor. You can smuggle it in much easier. Um, the, the stat that blew my mind was all of the fentanyl seized in, in the last couple of years would fill two drums. I mean, this is nothing. We're, not, we're mm -hmm. talking about nothing. And, and the users don't really want this either. They want heroin. But heroin is gone because of law enforcement. And if you are struggling with addiction, you're going to take whatever you can get. So... The, this leads to people who, who care about this saying a really important thing, which is that these drugs are not killing people. It is prohibition that is killing people. When you see other countries doing a better job than us, a lot of them have what is called either safe supply or government supply, right? And what that means is we know you're going to use drugs. Would it be better in, in an ideal world? Sure, if nobody used drugs, of course, fine. Uh, there's a lot of things that we that would be better in an ideal world, but we know you're going to use. And so, uh, you know, there are places like uh, Portugal is the most famous model where all drugs were decriminalized. As long as you work with people, uh, you're not going to go to jail for drugs. It takes a lot to end up in jail for drugs over there. Uh, and there are a lot of people who have uh, maintenance heroin doses where they'll come in, they'll get their their dose once or twice a day. Uh, my favorite stories, and these are in drug use for grown up, is the guy who every day in his lunch break, he walks down to his, his uh, neighborhood dispensary, sits down in a chair, gets his heroin and goes right back to work, right? The, this is how this stuff can be used in a safe uh, environment. But here in the U.S., we like to close our eyes and pretend that we can wish away drug use. And so people have to sneak around and get their drugs from back alley dealers. Right. And so that is what is leading to this rise of overdoses. And, and you know, if you want the, 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 the one that boggles my mind, man, is when people say to me, but we have to make a statement. You know, if we let people get away with drug use, we have to make a statement. It's like, what statement would you make that is not already being made when literally 100,000 of my friends are dying every single year, right? If you want to make a statement, it's right there on the front page. There is not a person who uses drugs that doesn't know someone who has OD'd, who doesn't know 10 people who has OD'd. That statement has been made 10 times over. So we get it. We get your statement. Now let's get past your statement and actually think about how to save people's lives. Yeah. And it, it seems like the common theme we keep going back to is law enforcement and jail time, basically. Yeah. That's what happens to drug users. Instead of helping them through that or supporting them with a safe method we throw them in jail a lot of the time and even for things like cannabis there's people sitting in our private jails 
you know, making panties or whatever for a penny an hour. And um, corporations profit off of that. So it's kind of an endless cycle. I did a senior paper on private prisons and how we kind of feed into that as a country of keeping the beds full. And this was a way to do it with low level drug offenses. And then some people, if you get three strikes, you're out and you're in there for the rest of your life. And like you said, it's more of a thing that needs a safe option or just mental health support at the end of the day, therapy, counseling, the support group, which our country also doesn't have. How do you guys kind of bridge that gap kind of switching over to mental health? Do you do anything with support groups there? Anything that's kind of crowdfunded or sourced? Most of the work that I'm doing is, is down the field from that. Um, you know, I think what is so startling is, is Megan, you make a really good point. And, you know, we've seen this recently on a whole host of topics where our country is super reactionary, right? We look at this thing is happening. Let's do the first thing and then not worry about anything else. Right. Uh, gun violence. Well, we gotta, we gotta, you know, I mean, everybody has their opinion. And then the smart people in the room are going, well, how about jobs? How about healthcare? How about mental health care? How about all of these things? Uh, housing, right? I mean, if you want to help eliminate gun violence, let's have secure housing. So the same can be said about drug use. If you want to cut drug use, it's not about the drugs. You know, a lot of us I think I'm a good example of this. I used to use in a really unsafe way. Now I use in a safe way because my life is a lot more stable and healthy now. I can use cannabis. I can ha I've never had an issue with alcohol, but I don't want 10. They're adding positive things to my life, whereas 10, 12 years ago, they were filling a hole that needed to be filled. If that hole had been filled in a healthy way, then I don't need a turd to drug use to, to try to fill that hole. That's all most drug use is, is trying to find a way to fill a hole. We don't know what the full equation is that makes people struggle with addiction anyone who claims that they that we do is is lying to you we know a lot of the variables and we but we don't know you know is it um this thing times three plus this thing times four you know like we don't know that the variables we do know are things this country isn't interested in addressing right uh we we don't really address mental health care that's not a thing that we do we don't do a good job of teaching kids when they're young self-regulation and and you know we had health class but we didn't have mental health class right so leading to these things um and to your for earlier point when someone does stumble instead of saying hey we get it let's teach you how to do a better job next time we throw them in prison right and there's so many people who went in over some bs charge and come out their entire life is ruined so you know we need to do a better job upstream when we talk about prevention, we should be talking about healthy lives. We should be talking about fulfilled lives and happy people, not things like dare and just say no. Um, you know, that that's, I just call it the system at this point, because it, it's not even just, I, I think it's a global thing. Like there's, there's a, a system in place that if you don't know the rules of the game, you can't play the game. Right. Um, and I think there's a lot of, forces in place that would like to keep it that way right like we're we're like prisons being a cage and not a rehabilitation right 
there are so many things that I, I feel like I'm still very early in my journey, which is funny because when I was a kid, I thought at age 30, it was like, I'm an old man. Where's my walker, right? I'm 34. I feel younger than I ever have. And I'm more excited about life than I've ever been, right? And a part of that is, you know, the self-discovery. I, I think a, a lot of things that happened to me made me think that I was supposed to figure out who I was through other people, uh, other experiences, media, you know, whatever it was. One thing as I try to understand myself is I, I've learned and understood, you know, some of the importances of being able to alter your consciousness to allow you to see things that, you know, maybe you could find it through meditation, right? I, I'm not, I, I say it all the time, like, I really want to meditate. And they're like, oh, do you practice? And I'm like, once, you know. But you um, really want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, well and, and it's the thing, right? Like we, we say and we do things and, and like in our heads, you know, we have like this version of ourselves or whatever, but then, you know, if you follow what people spend their money on and what they're doing with their time, you really see what matters and what's important. And, you know, that, that was like a tough look in the mirror for me. Right. But it, whatever. So I, I think that there's so many things and I, and I like the fact of, instead of just having a quick reaction and then it's like, well, we reacted to it, we're done. It's let's actually deep dive into it and see where the importance of finding the solution is. Right. If you're freaking out about gun violence, it's like, well, why are guns such a necessity for some areas and people? And it, it's it's all about opinions and everything, right? Like a lot of stuff can't, you know, it's hard. A lot of emotion gets involved. Um, and, and, you know, that that's a conversation I think I would love to have with you, hopefully at another time. But one thing I did want to ask you, I, I, I'm not sure if I know how to ask the question, but I'm going to do my best. There are people in this world who, let's say they never did drugs or alcohol, right? And I'm going to say that in a way of like illegal substances, right? Actually, no, no, I'm going to rephrase that. So drugs and alcohol can lead to addiction. Great. But I would say that nicotine and caffeine are drugs. Would you guys agree with that? Mm -hmm. Would you guys agree that sugar is a drug? So funny story. I included sugar when I did my TED talk, because if you actually look at what the scientific data says the top three most harmful substances in the country are nicotine alcohol and sugar mm -hmm. however since then i have been made aware by people smarter than me that there is a growing movement to rethink what we what we think we know about sugar and so while i still i'm with you man i mean mm -hmm. as a guy in recovery nothing has me hooked like sugar does. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's an actual problem for me. Like I try to practice mindfulness as much as I can. I mean, I have a lot of habits built into my day. The one, the number one mindfulness practice that I struggle with the most is mindful eating. And because when I have sugar, all bets are off. I will have wolfed that thing down before I've even tasted it, right? Right. So I'm with you. However, Part of this journey is being will, willing to admit I don't always know what's best. And because I've had so many people share with me, you know, there is this new way of thinking about sugar. I am now saying the jury's kind of out on that one because sure. uh, up, up until six months ago, I would have said the exact same thing you did. And now it's like once you say that then of course people come out of the word work going i can't believe you said that how are you not aware of all this going on and then you feel like an idiot so 
uh, it's sort of like yes and no is going to be my answer to what to what you said. Okay, and and that's totally cool, and I I respect and appreciate that. Like there are probably things I need to look into, right? And I speak from a place of a lot of people, um, whenever we're struggling with um, health, uh, alcohol and sugar usually cause us to have quite a bit of weight gain. Um, because like you said, with the sugar, I'm like, well, one more bite, right? Like I, I can, I am a very regulated person when it comes to my diet and it's regulated to the point of like, I love ice cream. That's my, that's my crypto. It's not a kryptonite. I have, I have a, a love for ice cream and I'm not going to keep that out of my life, but I'll sit down and I can eat a pint of ice cream. Like it's nobody's business, <laughs> but I also, you know, am paying attention to my calorie intake and I, and I'm being mindful of what I'm doing. Right. I would never go tell someone to like, go throw down on a pint of ice cream. Do you, but like, you know, whatever, teach their own. The reason I brought that up was like, so there is addiction. And then you have this moment where you're like, Hey, it's taken over my life and it's killing me. And so then you start working on it. And, <clears throat> and it's something that if, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you get to a point that you need help with addiction and you survive it, it's something that you have to work on for the rest of your life, right? You have to have that awareness of yourself and like how to maybe manage it. But if, if there are people who, let's say they never do caffeine, they never do nicotine, they never do alcohol, they never do any of it, and they, they focus on sobriety, right? For some people, sobriety, I think, is the answer, right? And then for people who have experienced drugs, even if they didn't have like a crazy story of addiction and like almost losing their life, do you think that there are benefits to the individuals that commit to sobriety, even if they were like curious about, because I mean, again, like you can ingest caffeine in a safe way, nicotine. I mean, you've even ex explained that like people who can go on their lunch break, get their, their amount of heroin and then go back to work. Right. And like, so it, it's doable, but do you think there's benefits to the, to the human experience of embracing sobriety? So sort of a, a very long answer to what you said. First off, for a lot of people, myself included, addiction doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of research. Um, uh, there was a guy named Stanton Peel uh, who, who did a lot of research on what is commonly called of outgrowing addiction. And what he found was a pretty substantial amount of people, if they live through this hellscape that is drug use right now, do grow out of it at some point you know maybe you're like me and your life gets on a more stable path i didn't i i had to go through a lot of treatment and shit like that but mm. people do outgrow this it, it happens all the time so and and for me personally is it is the battle against addiction a lifelong thing yeah because when you step back and you go all right it's not just drugs you know i know people who have an addiction to to to, to exercise right. and at one level, we go, okay, that's a little weird, but like, whatever, not a big deal. And then the next level, you're like, oh, no, like, that's an, that's a problem. You know, um, like the line between a friend of a friend who is such a CrossFit person that they are constantly injured, you know, I can look down on that and go, I think that's a problem, but other right. people, oh, they're just working it, right? So that there's a line, very, very thin line between that and the person I know who hasn't had a job in 20 years and he's on public assistance because he works out three times a day because he has an addiction to, to, to exercise, right? Right. But the last time that I was in rehab, I didn't see the, ad, the, the, the exercise addiction wing. That wasn't there, you know, because our society accepts that a little bit more, right? right. 
and the big change over the last decade has been finally admitting that maybe there is some, I don't, you know, there's the jury's out on if sex addiction's a real thing, but there is an act of addiction in what is happening for a lot of those people, right? And and going back to what you said before, it's kind of about control, where if you have control over this thing or if you don't, it doesn't really matter what it is. You know, if, if you like to eat a pint of ice cream, you're only doing it once every while, fine. You're doing that every day, we can all agree that's addiction like that is textbook addiction right? right so it's less about the thing and it's more about the act uh and, and that is what is changing and when you flip that switch and you go okay it's not just the drugs it's it's you know whether whatever the the the, the subject of that loss of control is then you start to see again all right what am i doing when i'm losing control here right you know, for me, uh, through work with various therapists, I realized that when I was struggling with an emotion, I had been taught back in the day that the answer was drugs and that led to my prescription pill addiction. But the line between that and now as an adult, me reaching for a candy bar isn't that thick. I mean, that is a very similar uh, feeling. Now, is that a little bit safer than reaching for a handful of pills? Of course it is. But over time, it's not good for me. And, and I have the body to show it. So the, the, the fact that I'm trying to make here is that, you know, we need to stop looking just at drugs or at, at alcohol or sure, whatever the case is, and take a step back and see it as a mental health struggle that it is, right? We used to separate the two. Is someone struggling with mental health and addiction, which is ridiculous. A addiction is a mental health struggle. And whatever it means to you as a person, that's what we got to be focusing on. That was a great answer because the reason why I use the word sobriety is, you know, you hear this thing of like, well, I'm, I'm sober and it's like this task and it's a day in, day out. And being sober, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, yeah. it's totally fine. But I love the fact that you brought up the point. You know, I've, I've had to talk to people exercise is something for me that uh, I was always good at. I like the endorphins and like I needed to be stronger at one point in my life. And then now it's like something that, you know, but in my struggles of my, of my mental health, I think during my twenties, I relied on processing stress and stuff through the physical aspect of it. Right. Like, okay, at least I can work on this. I felt like I had control and there is a, a difference between addiction to escaping your world by going to the gym and going to the gym with intention, right? Like it, it's all about mindfulness, the, the awareness. Yeah. And so I, I 100% am grateful that you brought that up because I have to be careful how I say this because I, I, I obviously don't know everything and I, and I don't study it, but addiction is something that I think awareness can help you really battle addiction, like self-awareness and, and understanding where it's really stemming from. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I essentially I was like five, um, but I was diagnosed with ADHD and they put me on medication and that medication definitely worked for everyone that tried to deal with me as a child because it, it, it sedated me. It did focus me, but I was like sedated. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it was crazy because when it would wear off, I mean, I was just sitting there and then as soon as it went off, it was like, I was released and then all of it just came out anyway. Right. I was never and especially back then there wasn't enough information, I think, right? Like we've learned so much in the last 20 years about, you know, just the mind uh, and, and the functionality. But my point is, is that I was a kid and I was, I was, it was like, Hey, like there's an issue, here's drugs. 
Right. And then I was given a new kind of drug because it was like, Hey, let's like, whatever. Um, and then in high school, I was like, I'm out, I'm not doing this fast forward. And I start learning more about myself and my mind. I'm like, Oh, like, wow, they, they were right. You know? And so there's nothing wrong with utilizing medication drugs, right? There's a stigma that's attached to stuff. And, and all of that just leads back to, you know, food, people get addicted to sleeping and, and like the escaping mindset, you know, but, but one thing I was thinking about too, was there, there are kids who have to get their like stomachs pumped, right? Because they drank too much alcohol. They found their parents' alcohol or they go to college and they, you know, whatever, there is no war on alcohol. <laughs> Like that, that, that's always kind of bothered me. Right. And I'm not saying we need to get rid of it. There needs to be like, like basically what you were saying, why aren't we realistically and honestly approaching these topics? Right. And it's like, even now, as I'm talking to you, I catch myself overthinking what I'm going to say because I don't want to offend people. Right. Well, I don't have an addiction to, it's like, I'm not here calling anyone out being like, you have this, you have that. Right. Well, I, I think we all have potential for an addiction. Even if you don't have one now, it doesn't mean at a later point, you're going to be either chasing a feeling or you're going to be running from a feeling. And maybe is there that such addiction- thing as a person without any addictions is my first question. That's what, no. <laughs> so let me teach you all a new term. Um, so we're trying not to say substance abuse anymore because it's a stigma, stigmified, stimulating term. But also, because it doesn't tell you that much, there's a term we're using instead that's, that's less stigma and also gives you more information. And that is substance misuse. Because what are you doing? You're misusing the substance. When you say substance abuse, that term was created to try to make people who use substance out to sound like monsters and, and did a good job. But the substance isn't abusing you. That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? When you think about abuse in other aspects, spousal abuse, all these horrible things, you know exactly what it means. And it means what it sounds like. Substance abuse doesn't mean that. The, the weed is not knocking me around the head, right? That's ridiculous. So substance misuse is exactly what you're talking about. And it's a very wide ranging term. Everything from the most extreme forms of addiction that we've been taught are ubiquitous and in reality are actually quite rare. Um, There there was a study done not long ago that tried that they showed that that even for the most extreme uh, or or for for if you look at all users altogether, roughly four to eight percent of all drug users will ever struggle with addiction. It really is not that large. But a much more substantial amount of users will struggle with misuse. Mm-hmm. And that can be everything from that that extreme addiction all the way to the kid who, as you just said, binge drinks on weekends. Does that kid meet the criteria for addiction? No, he's not getting the the, the mental and, and physical withdrawals, which is a needed part to be uh, or described with as having addiction. He is not um, the, the the diagnostic manual of of mental health disorders has very specific criteria of of what it takes to be diagnosed with an addiction issue. And someone who just binge drinks too much every couple of weekends will not fit that criteria. But you and I we can all sit here and agree that doesn't mean it's not a problem right Mm -hmm. so that that term helps people understand a little bit more that there number one there are ways to use a substance safely and i again me having a drink tonight with uh, over dinner with my wife is 
healthy use of a substance, right? Mm -hmm. But if I was having three drinks every couple of nights, or if I was drinking and then driving, you know, those are ways where I would be misusing that substance. So um, yes, to to your to your point, you know that there are there is, to an earlier point there are changing ideas on this. But to your more 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 recent one is these are these are things that uh, we are not doing a good enough job of teaching as we're as we're coming up and as we are thinking about what does the next generation of healthy use of substances look like especially now that we're legalizing cannabis releasing legalizing psilocybin and i if people like me have our way we're going to see a lot of other substances follow suit we want this to look more like cannabis and less like alcohol because the alcohol rules all over the place for perfect examples where i live here in philadelphia you cannot get alcohol anywhere i can't go to my corner store and, and buy a beer I have to go to government run stores, um, but that doesn't mean that it keeps people from from misusing it and alcohol misuse is all over the place. However, we're not seeing a lot of, of cannabis misuse in the places where we have medical or it's been legalized because it is very strict. And so I don't think that's the worst thing when it comes to some of these uh, other substances. I would like to see that tried. Uh, I think there's a lot of unknowns right now, and I think if we did this interview again in 10 more years, um, you know, cross our fingers, we're all still here on this earth and we haven't been wiped out. Uh, we'll have some really interesting things to talk about. I mean, honestly, even a year from now, I'm sure it, it's going to yeah. be pretty different. I, I think it's interesting and, and we're about to have to wrap it up, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to we'll have to get you back on. You know, the, the thing about it is, you know, I, I love the fact that we, you know, things get demonized, right? And, and stigma and all, all this stuff. And it, it's all at the end of the day about, you know, we have to change the way we were taught to think. And I think that's because in a lot of cases, we're not taught to think uh, like how to think. It's more about this is what we want you to think, right? And so that's a whole nother topic in itself. I really want you to know that I, I hope you keep fighting the good fight. Uh, it, it's <laughs> obvious that you, you have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things like I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I like to joke around like I'm a meathead. I love to go to the gym, right? I love lifting weights. Uh, it, it creates a, a foundation for the rest of my life. Like I can eat a pint of ice cream every once in a while, you know? <laughs> I, I think you brought up some great things and, and I very much enjoyed it. I, I really hope that, uh, people saw the value in, in our conversation, you know, and uh, hopefully people are going to check out not only what, what you talked about today, but you know, your socials and your, your website and all the things that you do. Right. Um, you know, if we do meet again and it's in 10 years, I'm sure you'll have like seven or eight or 12 or 15 podcasts and like 18 <laughs> organizations. Right. Uh, it'll be awesome. I hope uh, not. That sounds exhausting. But, <laughs> You're uh, like, that's a lot of work. <laughs> hopefully we are farther down this field than we are today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just like now I have so many things I want to think about and like talk about, but uh, we'll stop here. We do have to hit Megan's corner so we can talk about the fact that social media is real and it's a great way to get connected. It sure does. Yeah. We are on all socials at Friends of Failure. We will link all of Jay's stuff as well so you can easily find him and his organization. 
And then our email, if you want to send in your story, is friendsoffailurepodcast at gmail.com. Just send it our way. I think last time we asked, no more nudes. We can't take any more. Got Jay there. Um, (laughs) And yeah, we'll we'll see what we get. Yeah, I, I, I always like the idea of like talking to people and hearing their stories. I mean, even if it wasn't meant to be like shared as as something on the podcast, right? Like just the connectivity of it. But, you know, I, I just want to touch on what I said earlier of, you know, if you're afraid of saying the wrong thing or, um, you know, it's, it's like, well, what can I say? What can I say? You know, I, I challenge people to, to try to just be honest with themselves and, and let their truth out. You know, um, it's a hard thing to do for a lot of us and baby steps is the way to do it. Uh, it doesn't have to be the biggest, craziest truth that you have, you know, yeah, it could be something simple. You can start small and you get to choose what you tell people. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we made a joke a while back of like, hey, tell us anything you want, except if you killed somebody, we, we don't want to know or where you hid the body. No right. Yeah. yeah. We we don't want to end up in court. Uh, no. But, you know, with all that being said, I, I hope everyone listening enjoyed today's conversation. I know uh, I did and I'm sure Megan as well. Thanks again, Jay, for coming out. And uh, we like to leave everyone with this with this final thought. I try to live by it, you know, as a mentality that that phrase is life is happening for you, not to you. So go out there and do something like figure out that the the reality is not quite what it seems. And that if you dig deep enough, you'll you'll see the truth. He just rambles on for 21 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it, it like ends, but then the, the podcast is somehow like 72 minutes long or whatever. It's not I'm stronger than you, it's I'm wiser than you, I'm more loving than you, I'm more tolerant than you, I'm more sophisticated than you. It doesn't matter what it is, but this constant competition is going on. This is the secret. This is the secret. can't make a mistake.